Again, free thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, guys, hopefully, you all had a pleasant and enjoyable weekend. I know I certainly did, and I certainly enjoyed our conversation with 2024 Libertarian presidential candidate, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Dr. Reckenwald is the author of 12 books. He was a professor at NYU from 2008 to 2019 before his untimely demise with the university system. Dr. Reckenwald has appeared on numerous major networks and shows, including C-SPAN, Tucker Carlson Tonight, Fox and Friends, and The Glenn Beck Show. But our conversation touched on quite a few topics, including the current Israel-Palestine conflict, the Great Reset, and technocratic avalanche of anti-liberty ideas. We discussed CBDCs, defined woke culture, and of course, spoke about his 2024 presidential campaign. So here it is, guys, our conversation with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Reckenwald. It's an honor to have you on. Our mutual friend, Mike Heiss, reached out and asked if we could interview you. And as someone who's been following you for a while now, I was uh, certainly excited to take him up on that offer. Now, I know you've been extremely busy lately. You were on the Tom Woods podcast recently. Um, You're very active on Twitter. I think I just saw that you did a Twitter space last night. Uh, last month, you spoke at Mises Institute with Dr. Ron Paul. Um, I think it's safe to say that this is all an attempt to kick off your 2024 presidential campaign, uh, which I'm sure we'll be talking about today. You're also an author of 12 books, including Springtime for Snowflakes, which I'm sure we'll also get into. But first, it seems like the most important story in the news right now is what's going on in Gaza. Uh, Just yesterday, it was reported that 500 innocent civilians were killed when a bomb hit a hospital in Gaza. Uh, Of course, the media is kind of flip-flopping now on where the bomb came from. And in the midst of media obfuscation, we we may never really know. Uh, The one question, though, that has been on my mind lately is, why did Hamas instigate this fight with Israel a little over 10 days ago now? They certainly had to know Israel's military firepower, Uh, They had to know that this would cause a massive death uh, and destruction in in the region, yet they still proceeded to engage in the October 7th attack. What's your insights on this? Well, you know, I can't adjudicate the entire history of Israel and uh, Palestine. Um, Others have done great work on that. Scott uh, Horton is, I think, the go-to expert. And... uh, but I, I will say this, that uh, the, the attack was um, 
not a, you know, I mean, you can't say this was unprovoked. Uh, you know, there are many antecedents that are, you know, too thick and too many to even enumerate, but this is overdetermined by history. Um, and there's some pretty peculiar facts on the ground that make it seem kind of suspicious in terms of uh, the response or lack of response by Israel in the first place. Uh, there's a lot right now. There's a huge uh, contingent in Israel that's uh, blaming Netanyahu, and there's a question of like, why did it take seven hours for Israel to respond? How did they get past their uh, their uh, their Iron Dome in in case of the rockets, the uh, their surveillance uh, technologies in the case of breaching the wall, sure. and uh, their ability to do uh, to to undertake this. Uh, violence without uh, response, uh, it seems pretty peculiar. So I'll just leave it at that, and I'm not going to go further. But I'll just say that the, uh, you know, the, the response to date by Israel and the United States is complicit in this, has been not incommensurate and uh, unproportional. And I know there's a whole debate about what proportionality means. I'm not saying they should go kill as many people as, uh, as were killed by Hamas. Uh, I just think that uh, if they uh, if they do have a higher moral standard, uh, why don't they show it? Uh, right now, uh, the question about the hospital is uh, is being really uh, put into uh, propaganda circles in terms of they're saying that there was no hospital hit. It was the parking lot now. It was a rocket uh it was a stray rocket by him from a moss. All this is just impossible to adjudicate. But we do know there's there are plenty of flattened buildings and deaths uh, in the Gaza. And the most insane thing uh, is that the United States, and this is where I, I really want to draw the line, the United States is now uh, put, putting together a $10 billion aid package 90 billion to Ukraine, 10 billion to Israel, rockets and small diameter bombs to Israel, and 1 billion in so-called humanitarian aid to Gaza. So as I just tweeted, anyone not utterly duped by the current thing propaganda can see how insane all this is. Let's send the bombs, rockets, and funding to create the need for, quote, humanitarian aid also sent. Let's foment and escalate wars everywhere. everywhere. Meanwhile, the empire is shattered on the middle, in the inside, and crumbling to pieces at the center. I mean, this is crazy. We have been uh, fomenting and escalating and uh, increasing warfare all over the world, and now and the country's falling apart. Yeah, I agree. And what's you said? You you said something there, like the people are being duped, and you know, speaking of being duped, we have. We for the last few years, well, since Trump was in uh, office and kind of shifted a lot of the right towards this anti-war stance, which we could tell was temporary, right? But right. since since this uh, you know this conflict broke out uh, two weeks ago, we've seen people's true colors, and now just like yeah. the left has been cheering for support in Ukraine, um, you know, now we have the right cheering to turn Iran into a parking lot and give Israel all the money and. So they 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 were temporarily um, anti-war for a for a few years, right? Until somehow yeah. they got convinced 
by this by the establishment to once again support war, which is what happens every time with this two party paradigm. But I yeah. guess my question is, what do you think was like the main catalyst in, in this conflict that had all these people who were like, we don't need we need to stop sending money away and, you know, concentrate on America. And now they're like, we need to start sending money away and concentrate on America. What do you think that what happened in their minds or, or what was this? facilitating factor that that kind of like turned flipped a switch on the right and made everybody start supporting this war it's it's unbelievable so you know you hear from the so-called anti-war right that everything coming out of the media is propaganda so they you know they resisted the covid uh, mandates they resisted the uh, ukraine war uh exactly. and they but then you know there's there's a whole line of other things they've you know supposedly resisted and then comes this issue this this conflict and they completely are folded back into the neocon camp and have been completely subsumed by it and now they're calling as you said it, the, the things they're saying and the support they're giving for uh, for this uh, particular conflict in terms of Israel's attack on well I would say its response just to be a little bit judicious its response uh, is, is unbelievable so I think um the only reason, first of all, that this this so-called anti-war right went this way, and they also opposed, you know, post facto, the conflict in Iraq, the Iraqi war. This was because Trump actually made an issue out of it. And uh, I'm not heroizing Trump here, but it is true that it was his influence that led uh, to the uh the the this particular segment of the uh, conservative so-called movement to uh oppose uh, the ukraine uh funding and and battle so they're very very much uh, lacking principle they're, they're they're just responding uh in a way that has no uh bearings and i would i would say this that the um the causes i think are uh there's a lot of propaganda out there, and uh, it, it is uh, they they seem un incapable of resisting it in this case, uh, because I think uh, there's been fomented uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know the inverse of uh, Islamophobia, kind of a, an Islamic uh, uh, hatred, and uh, this kind of. Uh, Judeophilism, they're Judeophilic, you know, and uh, they, they there's a lot of uh, other things that, are, that play into this. There's the evangelical right who believes the state of Israel must be uh, established before and maintained before the you know the return of Christ, and they think that Israel is the Israel of the Bible. Uh, that can all be dem demonstrably uh, disproven. And, and there's just so many things that have folded this uh, group back into the neocon right. It's, it's, it's overdetermined. There's so many factors, but it's, uh, I think it's really comes down to the fact they have no principles. Sure. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you uh, brought up the potential of this uh, attack by Hamas as being uh, I guess a false flag, you know, I, people have speculated on that. We do know that, um, 
the Egyptian intelligence did reach out. And uh, in fact, I think I said, saw yes. something as well about U.S. intelligence actually reaching out and warning uh, Israel. And um, I, I guess they misplaced their defense units and uh, didn't maybe take it as seriously as they should have. But this does harken back to the USS Liberty, right? And we know uh, from yeah. you know historical documents that this wouldn't be something that's totally out of the question. Um, so, you know, and of mm -hmm. course, there's a, a lot to gain by something like this. And uh, of course, you know, Janet Yellen and even Biden now are justifying how they could continue to fund uh, two wars, which is as absolutely, you know, insane. Um, of course, mm -hmm. you know, we're already at 33.5 trillion with the national debt. Uh, just in June of this mm -hmm. year, it was 32 trillion. So, you know, the U.S. is hemorrhaging debt faster than possibly any other time in history. Um, this all comes on the heels of sending roughly 130 billion to Ukraine. And uh, I say roughly just because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody really knows <laughs> the true amount that has been allocated in weapons and aid, you know, so. Um, but now it feels like the U.S. government is switching gears uh, to the Israel-Palestine war almost in like a sleight of hand, which it seems a bit deceptive because, you know, a lot of people have grown tired and, and wary of uh, all the funding to Ukraine. Um, so do you perhaps see that mm -hmm. as being, you know, part of this decaying, rotting empire? And, uh, you know, obviously things are declining rapidly. Um, what, what do you think we could do to prepare for this inevitable collapse? Uh, that, that's a great question. Let me just stress a couple of the points you made along the way, though, if I can. Uh, there, you know, the cynical Biden uh, administration uh, wanted to sandwich together aid to military aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan simultaneously, and they called it jamming the far right. Uh, so they they know that they're actually by putting these two aid packages together. They're, uh, sam you know, sandwiching these two. They are having, they're, they're forcing the right, uh, the so-called right to uh, decline aid to Israel if, if they decline uh, aid to uh, Ukraine and vice versa. So it's a real sleight of hand. Uh, but um, what we can prepare for this is um, we have to, uh, we have to build communities that are somehow somewhat resistant to the global collapse that we're that is impending uh, this is part of my campaign was but it was also part of my uh, book my last book the great reset and the struggle for yes. liberty i had a nine-point plan for resisting the great reset it it's based on the premise that we can't really control what these uh puppeteers are trying to do but we can cut the puppet strings from ourselves and that means resisting all of their dicta and uh, technologies and uh, other uh, means that are used to manipulate people to follow orders. And this really means that, you know, they have to drive their imperatives into the social fabric uh, to the local level or else they are not, they are not controlling us entirely. So, I mean, my campaign is based on localism you know, decentralization, uh, and that means uh, resisting like the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, absolutely not buying into it. That means having parallel currencies in place that are not losing value like the dollar as they continue to print money for the war and after COVID and uh, everything else that they've you know, 
other means they've made to deflate the dollar as against goods. Uh, so all of this has to be uh, resisted by building parallel economic, social, and uh, political structures uh, that can withstand a potential catastrophe, at least to the extent that we can stay alive and pass a legacy to the future of liberty, uh, a, a market that's unhampered by governmental uh, control and overreach and corporate uh, monopolies, and uh, a, uh, a, uh, a real-life uh, communities that, you know, uh, are somehow shielded from the, the regime's uh, dictates and, and, and propaganda and, and uh, failings. That's that's the only thing I've been able to, to say, because we're not going to topple it from the top down. We have to try to beat it from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely. Build those parallel networks, uh, I, I believe, is, you know, kind of the, right. the agorist point of view. And I feel like a lot more people within the liberty uh, movement have kind of taken hold of this decentralized concept, which, you know, as personally as an anarchist, obviously, I feel like that's the ideal route to go. And I feel like maybe a lot of people are using the vehicle of uh, politics to kind of usher in um, more of that type of mindset and, and to try to wake mm -hmm. people up towards it. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Dr. Reckonwald, you actually just uh, talked about a few things here that I have noted as questions. Um, I actually wanted to talk about uh, your book. I know you've written what is about 12 books now over the years. Yeah, um, but I do want to I do yeah. want to talk about the Great Reset and the struggle for liberty, uh, unraveling the global agenda. Um, of course, the foreword was written by the great Lou Rockwell, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, and the, yeah. the book covers uh, the history of the World Economic Forum, which, you know, we should all probably know by now. Uh, population control, ethics, climate change, mm. uh, transhumanism, of course, all really uplifting stuff. But <laughs> um <laughs> As you mentioned, uh, you end the book with the nine-point plan for stopping the Great Reset in its tracks. Um, I don't expect you to recall like all nine off the top of your head, but like, what's the the, the basic breakdown um, of those nine? Yeah, sure. I mean, number one is is rejecting the CBDC because that's that's the yes uh, final nail in the coffin. It, it closes the totalitarian circle. Buying into that is loss of liberty almost altogether yeah. because your finances your 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 ability to act economically in the marketplace is controlled by the fed right uh or other central banks uh, and uh and then uh, a lot uh, next to that and, and part of and parcel of it really is the digital identity which the bank of international settlements has explicitly stated is necessary for ushering in the cbdc and that would be linked to your C, uh, to your uh, account with the Fed, and that is a means of tracking you from cradle to grave, and using data to uh, basically adjudicate your fate. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. There's so much to it, and so many organizations involved in it. But it comes out of the UN, the World Bank, and uh, many funders like Bill Gates and uh, many others. Uh, it is a uh, it's a travesty. It has to be resisted, uh, and uh, we don't need it. They, they say it's for inclusion, uh, <laughs> and they want to include everybody in it. Well, <laughs> uh, anything that's inc totally inclusive with no 
with no option to opt out, that is totalitarian. I mean, that's exactly the definition. There's no outside of it. Right. So that's a very pernicious thing. And then, of course, uh, the, um, the resisting these transhuman technologies. Now, I'm not a technophobe or a Luddite, but the, what we have to keep in mind is who is wielding these technologies and to what end. Uh, they want to, you know, uh, uh, extend this Internet of Things, which is just data tagging every resource uh, there is and keeping track of where it is, who owns it, what they're doing with it, etc. And then there's the Internet of Bodies that, that would track our uh, not only our behavior externally, but also our internal behavior, including all of our biometric data uh, and uh, and also uh, even our brains. Uh, I, I won't go too far into that because it sounds outlandish, but it's actually very possible uh, with brain cloud interfacing. And uh, even uh, Elon Musk is working uh, with Neuralink on uh, brain computer slash cloud interfaces. That's a disaster because it puts your brain on the internet or the cloud. And, and there's a two-way transmission between the cloud and your brain. Yeah. Um, I'll leave it to you to see what that means. Two-way tra transmission between your brain and the uh, and the cloud. Okay. So that to me implies supplementing and or displacing your actual thoughts with uh, cloud, in, you know, cloud-initiated thoughts. Told, you know, even this guy, you you've all know Harari has said that free will is gone. We can hack you. Right. And that's what that's what he's referring to, this brain cloud interfacing. And then, of course, look, we have to practice the free market in our own, in our own lives. And that means these networks, these parallel structures and economic and social networks we have to develop. And uh, this is, uh, as I mentioned, you know, in connection with your other questions, this is maybe necessary for survival at this point. Um, this, this is not going to be just political in the sense of like uh, making liberty possible. We may need this strictly to survive. Uh, and so there's other things that have to do with the uh, ESG, uh, which is a coercion regime established by the UN and uh, implemented through the World Economic Forum and its many corporate partners and bankers and asset managers who are foisting this on us it is a total destruct you know it totally distorts the market it's a monopoly scheme or a shared cartel scheme shared monopoly scheme a cartel scheme and uh it is extra governmental so this is tricky for libertarians it is not strictly governmental it is a coercion regime at the corporate level largely but it is being backed up by the state by state um, uh, in the case of the U.S., uh, by executive orders and so forth. And uh, the, one of the first, in fact, the first uh, bill that Biden, uh, that Biden, uh, you know, that he sent back that he that he didn't uh, approve was uh, an ESG measure that would uh, would have permit forbid the the federal government from investing its pensions in ESG stocks that got repealed by Biden. The, we need to, you know, we need high level defectors from, from this, uh, from this, uh, regime, from, from the imperatives that are being foisted. I think they're globalist in, in nature. Uh, 
we need high-level defectors in the elite, uh, from the elites, uh, to defect from this publicly and make it very clear why they're doing so. We have some hints of those. Yes. Uh, Elon Musk is somewhat of an ambiguous figure. I've, I've mentioned his brain cloud or brain computer interfacing Neuralink, but he, he is uh, he has expressed uh, some disdain for this whole agenda. Uh, and then uh, lastly is uh, is to spread the message locally and uh, as much as you can uh, how to resist. Um, that, that's basically it in a nutshell. Sure. Well, you know, I certainly trust uh, Elon much less than I did probably a year ago. <laughs> you know, he, I feel like he's shown his yeah. true colors. He's, he's big talk. You know, he's big on the, the First Amendment free speech. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we're still waiting on three of our old Twitter accounts that were banned in 2018 to be uh, reinstated. And I don't think that's ever going to be happening, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have one out there. You know, I'm glad that you touched on all those, uh, Dr. Reckonwall, because it just feels like there's so many arms to this octopus, and it really is a brave new world. There's so much that we have to be aware of, uh, so much we have to acknowledge and be pushing mm-hmm. back on. And I'm glad that you brought up the CBDCs, because I actually uh, just wrote a book that I released last month uh, to Excellent. yeah to prepare for CBDCs called Three Ways to Prepare for CBDCs. I'm sure our audience is tired of hearing me talk about it by now, but you could check that out on jasonbassler.com or it's on Amazon, guys. Oh, great. Um, but yeah, so it's it's not just the digital IDs, right? It's also the social credit scores. And then if you want to take it one step further, it's the 15-minute cities, which they're you know also kind mm-hmm. of ramping up yes. right now, basically going to create this whole control grid. And um Right. I'm so glad you also talked about the ESG program because I don't think that's something we've really talked about much on this podcast, but that as well is is truly uh, horrific. And as you mentioned, it's this public-private mm-hmm. partnership to basically you know collude with government and these corporate institutions uh, to push for these things, which you know ESG, just for anybody who isn't aware, stands for environmental, social, and governance. And basically, it's just a new criteria for corporations. Uh, to coerce, as you said, uh, private companies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically like if somebody like BlackRock, hey, you want our money, you have to show us yep. your ESG score. You know, how many women do you have on your board? How many minorities you have employed? So it's basically kind of like this trickle down process that brings things in through the back door. And in my opinion, just another step right. towards fascism or cronyism or corporate capture. I mean, all absolutely all these things are, I guess, kind of similar but back to CBDCs, um, because they are, you know, so important, as you mentioned, I think you said it was number one on your list there. What do you suggest is a good way for people to prepare for CBDCs? And like, what do you think the time frame is uh, that we should be expecting them to be implemented by Western governments? Great question. So Congress apparently has uh, uh, passed a bill to make it a requirement that Congress would approve any CBDC. That's as far as they've gone. It did not go any further than Congress. Uh, I don't think it's been voted on in the Senate yet. So there is some awareness about this, but I I don't think it'll, um, the the opposition will be able to withstand the push. Mm -hmm. So I'd say it's going to, it's, it's going to come down, you know, as you know, I'm sure you know a lot more about it than I do. If you've written an entire book on this, but the Federal Reserve has uh, been uh, investigating the possibility of instituting one. 
They had a white paper about this, of exploratory findings. They opened it up to comments, and the comments were outrageously negative and wonderfully negative. <laughs> uh, there must have been like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of libertarian-minded people commenting on this. And so people know this is, that you know, a lot of people know what a pernicious possibility this is. I would say we're going to look at it in about two years or less. You're going to see this being uh, foisted on us. <sighs> and the way out of it, of course, is, uh, is simply to have parallel currencies in place that we're using yes. that people will accept in their networks. And I'm not going to adjudicate which ones, <laughs> although I would say there are definite contestants out there. Bitcoin, of course, is a major, major player. And, uh, you know, then there's the gold people. And I'm not going to go gold versus Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin here. Uh, it's going to be up to the networks what they accept, really. Yeah, I agree. And a parallel economy seems like the only way out of that, and which is why they, you know, the powers that be, the people that are pushing the CBDCs and everything, this massive technocratic police state, are the ones trying to attack that parallel economy constantly. You know, but yes. it's, it's remains resilient and, and it's because it's decentralized and it's worldwide, you know, <clears throat> yes. um, kind of pivoting a little bit. So it's no secret. Now you're running for president of the United States on the Libertarian Party, uh, yeah. which is pretty awesome. Um, Thank you. And we've been talking about some pretty ominous things in the pipeline that, that coming through particularly like the great reset and stuff like that uh you know say like when you when you get elected as a president of the united states day one what what do you do to to stop like we've been talking about solutions like creating parallel economies and stuff but th that's different if you're the president of the united states <laughs> how does yeah. the president of the united states uh attack this and and like try to you know reduce this divisive hatred that, that's building in the united states and you know, how do you how do you go in there and do that as an individual? What, what would you do on day one? Well, day one, um, you know, I would have you get swore in and they tell you that they show the, the, <laughs> the angle of JFK being assassinated. That no one's ever seen. And they're like, all right, yeah, right. Do what we say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they give You'll you the ominous it. warnings like, uh, don't you know, basically we have you now you're a captured yeah. uh, entity. And uh, I would I would say, you know, like, I mean, realistically, this is my campaign is an education campaign to bring about a move, you know, to bring about a movement. I will say that I do need to have policy ideas because this is the only way to get uh, votes and attention to the movement. So mm -hmm. my policies are very simple. I mean, it's uh, we need to end the Fed, of course. Uh, and I think, but we need to work uh, on the local level to erode its power by virtue of this, you know, pulling out from underneath of it and let, you know, helping it to implode. So I think I would uh, argue for, you know, uh, I would uh, immediately try to get legislation passed that would uh, eradicate the legal tender laws so that other currencies become legal so that people can start using these other currencies which likewise, you know, erodes the, the Fed's power over uh, its monopoly over money. That, that's the key. So we, we need to be kind of multi-pronged in the approach. It isn't like you can go in there and day one and strike the Fed from existence. That, that's not going to happen like that. It has to right. go through Congress, et cetera. So you build the momentum for the 
for this. And you have to have articulated the reasons why this is necessary to do, and you have to push for it. So day one, you're not getting rid of the Fed, but you begin, uh, and through the whole campaign, you've begun to uh, articulate the reasons why the Fed is so pernicious and uh, why it's a, a completely monopolistic, uh, counterfeiting horror show, and what it's done to our society, not just economically, but culturally, by uh, increasing uh, the time preference of people. That is, you know what that means, but maybe some listeners don't. And that means making people so present-oriented that they have no, uh, they have no um, thoughts and preparations for the future in saving and uh, investing in capital. So, and you show about how the culture has been degraded by virtue of this. They've actually created a dystopian hellhole uh, in our culture with uh, this high time preference. And, uh, you know, all the elements that I think are uh, very obvious, you know, the fact that it, uh, they, are, they are the inflationary uh, producers and uh, they are, uh, of course, uh, completely corrupt in terms of where they distribute money and who gets it first and all that. And of course, that makes a huge difference who gets the money first, uh, because it's more valuable when they get it and much less valuable by the time uh, so-called ordinary people get uh, anything. So yeah, you got to do all that and show the connection between the Fed and the wars. Uh, We wouldn't have these endless wars if it weren't for the fact that the Fed can produce money out of thin air and fund us. So it's obvious that the, the Fed and, and the wars are intimately tied at the hip. And, you know, but, uh, you know, what what's possible on day one is, uh, you know, I would pardon uh, Snowden and uh, Julian Assange on day one. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I'd have those sitting there waiting and all I'd need to do is people, oh, that's not important for day one. Yes, it is. I, w- I would have them already prepared, of course, and other pardons that I would uh, have to look at, but. Those two would definitely be pardoned on day one. They are heroes against the state, and likewise, they need to be uh, exonerated entirely. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, definitely. That would be quite symbolic too, as to you know what your uh, goal and what your mentality, I guess, coming into a position like that. So, uh, if I could um, maybe petition for Ross Albrecht also uh, be on that list. Oh yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes, I think he's on that list. I'm just using those two iconic characters oh, yeah. as uh, the main one. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, sticking along with the campaign here, uh, yesterday you shared a 12 second clip of Roseanne Barr on Twitter. And uh, of course, Roseanne yeah. never disappoints. Uh, in the clip, she's saying, I want to hear some shit that makes me want to overthrow this motherfucking government and do it right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> the, the caption that you, you accompanied the post with was perfect in my opinion, uh, which was the perfect running mate doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, I cut short on the word exists. It's, it stops halfway through the word. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's like a little because, meme in itself. Of uh, course. The ideas are, Ooh, Ooh, this might be worth, she might be worth looking at. Right. That would be an interesting, um, to woo her into this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, could make some headway. I, I guess like I was, I assuming that was in jest, but in like all seriousness, have you considered a running mate? And uh, also there's a second part to this question. I saw that Mike Heiss uh, recently resigned as the Mises caucus chair, and he's going to be uh, helping mm-hmm. you with your campaign. Uh, what do you have envisioned mm-hmm. uh, with that partnership? Michael Heiss is a 
dynamo, a genius, uh, very, very, I think, underappreciated in many respects by some people, okay? The guy is brilliant. Uh, he's the most hardworking person I've ever known. Wow. Uh, I think he's incredible. So I brought him on as my campaign manager. He's uh, doing tremendous work, um, not only behind the scenes in so-called whisper campaigns, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's doing great work for the campaign and the movement as such. And this, this campaign is about, you know, furthering the movement that he be, that he really ushered in, I think, with the decentralized revolution campaign of the Mises Caucus. So uh, he, he's a right hand man. I would uh, I would not do this without him. I would just not do it. Are you familiar with Larry Sharp? Yes. You, you you mentioned that you needed some like some some tighter policy like adherence or not adherence, but just ideas. He we've had him on the podcast several times and. Um, Larry Great Sharp time. is he's a very articulate person and, and the and the ideas that he has to fix so many problems. Granted, he hasn't apl applied them nationally, but, uh, you know, when he was had his two campaigns in New York, uh, he's had he's had some just some incredible original ideas that would fix so many of these, you know, the complex, smaller problems outside of this you know, this global octopus. <laughs> yeah, but, sure. Larry's uh, a great guy. Met him in New Jersey. He knows me. Uh, he said he was uh, following my campaign. And uh, I have brought on some uh, other advisors on the international front and economic front. Uh, Walter Block is uh, one of my advisors just to go to mm -hmm. when I uh, need to articulate a position. And... Uh, and uh, there, there's others too that don't want to be named exactly, but they're they're definitely behind me in terms of uh, big being advisors. And Larry Sharp would be a great addition, no question. Oh, certainly. So, like, still in the campaign um, vein here, uh, but just a little bit shifting. Um, you know, you were a professor for for very many years at uh, NYU, and then we have you've written about this woke cancel culture. Um, you know, given this background, what reforms like you know if if they could take place at a national level or if they need to be more localized what reforms do you think that this education system in america would take to try to fix this seemingly like running off of a cliff well yeah i mean the main thing you have to do is defund it uh the federal government defunding it quit it quit having federal funds this is what produced all these right. statists these people are effectively agents of the state all these faculty members and so forth, their status, because they're, they know where their bread's buttered and it's coming from the federal government with loans, grants, and all the other distribution of funds towards universities. That's the first step to, de, uh, to defund it and to get rid of uh, wokeness because wokeness is, is the state's official ideology, really, quasi-official. It is um, what the state is operating on. And so to get rid of it, you have to get rid of the state's uh, support of these institutions. And then, you know, you need an education campaign that goes to the heart of these matters ideologically. And that's where the libertarian ideas come in and they'll have to be, uh, they have to be disseminated and articulated in their entirety uh, to the public. And uh, this would impact the universities uh, as the brain trusts as they are of uh, statism 
uh, once you get rid of their funding, then you work on changing their thinking. And uh, that's education. Uh, that's, and I'm an educator. That's what I do. So that would be part of the, the campaign and also part of my reforms uh, is to tell people why these, these organizations are woke, what wokeness really means, what it's about, and how it is uh, very uh, restrictive of thought. It's a patent uh, uh, ideological straitjacket that's being imposed on students. And uh, I have a son that's a pre-med student. So this is not a Clintonite type story. This is just my truth, my truth. <laughs> this is just a fact that my son is a, a pre-med student at the University of Pittsburgh. And you know, he, he every once in a while he comes to me to ask, just take a look at this essay. It would tell me what you think. And you know, I think, you know, he does great writing. And then every time these things come back, there's always some woke bullshit that gets uh, uh, criticism and, you know, oh, this could hurt somebody's feelings or that. Uh, he used the term going native, which is an anthropological <laughs> term that's been around for like 50 years and they, that could hurt people's feelings and they took 10 points off of his grade. I mean, this is the kind of shit that has to stop. This is an outrage. This is like an ideological imposition on, on the mind. It's a, a mind virus and it's also a straitjacket and it is, uh, it's the adopted ideology of all these institutions. And the uh, academia uh, was never supposed to be foisting a particular ideological perspective on people. And uh, this goes all the way back to the American universities, uh, American uh, Association of University Professors who said this in 19, I think 13 or around there. Yeah, very ominous year, but yes. <laughs> uh, they said that in fact, uh, you know, freedom of thought and freedom of, uh, uh, expression and inquiry cannot be uh, the abdication to any particular ideological viewpoint. And that's exactly what we've got. So that, that has to be done uh, in many ways, but I, education and a counterattack, I, uh, counterattack has to be made. Yeah, well, it feels like you're reading my mind when you're answering these questions because that's something I want to talk about as well. But um, I know you were a professor at NYU from uh, 2008 to 2019. Um, and I right. I'm sure, um, you know, people could do their research to, to figure out what happened there. I'm sure that some of that mm -hmm. time there inspired some of your literature. And uh, in your book, Springtime yeah. for Snowflakes, you discuss the concept of woke culture. And I think you just mentioned it a second ago, actually digging in and, and explaining what that word means. Um, so can you explain what that term means to you? And maybe also like what inspired you to speak out against the political correctness and these prevailing woke ideologies in academia? Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. So wokeness, of course, is really connected to the concept of social justice. It really is the term that's now been used to... to uh, to sort of disguise uh, social justice imperatives. And uh, social justice is a, a notion that, you know, uh, there is some sort of a group right to different things. Groups have these rights, and uh, they also are, you know, have been uh, treated in some indiscriminate, in indiscriminatory, discriminatory ways, and uh, that we need to compensate these groups, and uh, that... Uh, 
that uh, identity is all mm -hmm. and uh, your group membership is really what determines your fate. And uh, the idea of the individual is a, fa a fallacy. Right. The individual has no real agency, that everything is determined by group membership. And uh, beyond that, that, there's a function of wokeness, which I've written about later in, in uh, The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. And this is the idea that basically all of anything that you, uh, that the so-called uh, uh, dominant groups have attained in life is all premised on privilege. Likewise, uh, these are privileges, not rights. And that includes um, any, any kind of success you've had. This is all based on your privilege. This is not based on any merit whatsoever. And, and even your property uh, is, has been endowed to you uh, under a privilege system. So you don't deserve them. So likewise, they can be taken away. They can be, you can either abdicate them voluntarily because you don't deserve it and you recognize this. So it's a guilt tripping scenario mm -hmm. or they'll be taken away from you otherwise. Uh, this is what uh, woke ideology, I think, is the ideological premise of the uh, Great Reset, that you don't deserve anything. Uh, so, what, you know, the Great Reset ideology, interestingly, is kind of like socialism in a way, except that it says socialism promises you more uh, you know, there's this cornucopia that we're being denied because we don't have ownership of the means of production and blah, blah, blah. This says, no, no, there's, you don't get more. You get less with this, with this system. And you need to understand why that's, why that's what you deserve. And so uh, that's, that's really, it's a, it's a subtractive ideology on the, on those grounds. It subtracts your rights and subtracts your property and your right to property. And I would add too, it's also attractive to those who are more emotionally based, right? Because there's not a lot of yeah, logic, yeah, that's right? True. And it's more of this appeal to emotion. And uh, I would, yeah, suggest it's just collectivism on steroids, right? And a lot of times when yeah. I hear the, the rhetoric from these people, it just feels like it's just this big social club. Like there's not really any boundaries of principle. There's not really any application of thought. It's just more of like, hey, this is what we've come to a general consensus of. Either you believe us or you're yeah. a fascist, racist, homophobe. And uh, there, there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing in between. Um, but, you know, right. that kind of leaves us here with, uh, well, at least one of my last questions, which, you know, it kind of blew my mind, Dr. Reckonwald, when I was listening to you on the Tom Woods show a few days ago, because I learned that you were once a devout Marxist during your time in academia. And um, mm -hmm. from what I gathered mm -hmm. uh, from that interview, there was maybe quite a few circumstances that led you to that position. Maybe it wasn't just an intellectual influence. Uh, but, you know, that certainly fascinates me because um, I started to try to think about why, uh, you know, I came to the conclusion that it, it fascinated me so much. And I guess it was because it's really rare for people to have the integrity to admit that they were ideologically and intellectually incorrect, uh, especially if somebody's yeah. identity is wrapped up in these beliefs, which, you know, we were just talking about with the woke culture. Um, so I, I certainly give credit to anyone who can acknowledge they were wrong. And then bonus points here makes an effort to realign with more principled positions that resonate with their core beliefs. So I guess with that said, you know, what were the factors that allowed you to be able to have the mindset that you could reexamine your ideology and recognize it no longer served you? Oh, that's great. 
great question. Thank you for asking that. So I was, even as a Marxist, I was somewhat fiercely independent. So there was a, always an independent streak in me. And uh, likewise, I, I, uh, I wasn't like a, a, fit, a fan of the Bolsheviks, for example. I called myself a left communist, and that was uh, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Bolsheviks really uh, duped the, um, the workers into believing that the, that the control of the means of production would be in their hands, and instead it would become uh, the property of the state under the Bolshevik uh, party, and uh, which would change names, of course, later. But... Uh, so there was always kind of rebellion within, even within the Marxist uh, camps, and I was part of the re rebellion uh, against kind of like the um, the overarching, you know, what they call within it tankies. Uh, those, you know, tanky refers to somebody who effectively uh, supports the Soviet project even after they rolled tanks into Hungary. So I was anti-tanky, <laughs> but. Uh, I, but I think the uh, ability to recognize how wrong it was was made evident to me through uh, the assault that I had underwent uh, as a result of my defection in other areas like the social justice stuff, and to realize just how totalitarian these people's mindsets were, and. Uh, and I, I never liked totalitarianism, even as a Marxist. I thought it could be avoided. Um, but I now, of course, think otherwise. Nevertheless, I was also always anti-totalitarian. And I saw the totalitarianism of the left in general and Marxists as well. And I said, I just don't want anything further to do with these people. And I became a civil libertarian almost overnight. Wow. Uh, and then immediately started a very deep dive into uh, economics and social and political libertarianism and became a convert within months. And uh, I thought, now that I know what the, do, the deal is, what the truth is, what this stuff really is, I need to talk about this. I need to tell people. I need to attack it. It has to be uh, dealt with from and to dismantle it uh, as somebody who really knows what uh, it is, you know, like so having an education in Marxism actually helps me to understand why it's so fatally flawed and why it's so uh, demonstrably uh, horrible, but, you know, not just uh, empirically based on its the evidence of its uh, implementation, but also theoretically. So that's what I've been doing. So I I want to say this. I would challenge any other candidate for the Libertarian Party to produce as much anti-communist language, uh, writing and speaking and, uh, uh, you know, really activism against communism. Let me see it, because I've written more against communism than anybody in this field by a long shot. <laughs> and so and I'm not just saying going around saying, fuck, communists, you know. <laughs> Job. That's that's kind of easy, you know. So throw what? them out of the helicopter, commies. Yeah, throw them out of the helicopter. I, I mean, I I kind of sympathize with that uh, impulse, but uh, th there's more to it. You got to really take it and dismantle it from the bottom, you know, from the structural standpoint. So that's what I've been working on. That's what I've done for years. I've written five books doing this. Uh, so yeah. 
That's awesome, man. That's certainly something that resonates with me, as Jason knows, and as many listeners know. I was like this hardcore neocon apparatus, like tool for the state when I was in the Marine Corps. You know, I would have, I was a weapon that they could point and I would have done anything. You know, I would have hurt innocent people. I would have done a lot of bad things and what, yeah. you know, thinking that I was doing something right. And it, it like Jason said, it certainly is a, a monumental task to be able to snap out of that and, you know, and, and move forward and base your decisions based on principles instead of these emotional ideas that holds absolutely no logic, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a, you, as you said, you were like, you, you were a self-described left communist and you've morphed into this, to the presidential candidate for the libertarian party, a presidential candidate for the libertarian party, uh, which is a massive <laughs> shift, right? Yeah. And, and and we like to kind of uh you know we're we're getting close to the end of the podcast and we always like to kind of have a what we call like a white pill question or a solution question yeah. and I think yeah. that given your transition over the years um uh, you know from that Marxist state to this you know to somebody who holds freedom um you know as the Trump card there not Donald Trump but <laughs> as a Trump yeah, card yeah, there yeah yeah that word um, ruined how do we yeah. how can we foster a society that you know, you said you've written books that are anti-communist. How about like, how do we foster society that can, that can hold these values and celebrate the power of resiliency and ideas and principles? How do we do that? We've been trying to do that here at the Free Thought Project for a decade now. And we don't, while we have, you know, woken up very, very many people, you know, many people who reach out to us uh, and thank us for taking them out of their status stupor. Uh, yeah. We don't have a specific formula for it, right? So, yeah, what, how would you be able to describe like your path and maybe try to apply that into some kind of formula to wake people up? And you know, I think that no idea can stop an idea whose time has come, like Ron Paul famously that's, stated, that's right. right? Yeah. Uh, how how do we how do we uh what's the, what's the formula? I know it's not so easy of a question, like you know, like it's X plus Y, <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, well, yeah, if, yeah. if there was one, how would we do that? Well, we have to be, you know, I, I will say this, uh, largely, um, you know, my conversion started with trauma from the left, the trauma that I, uh, that I, um, in, that I experienced at their hands, you know, um, they, you know, it was beyond belief, the kind of attacks I was under and that that's really, I, we need to be on the lookout for defectors because these people, you know, as I've said, the left eats its own, but not fast enough. That is, they're propagandizing faster than they are. They're they're canceling each other, and so we need to be on the lookout for those people. And I would I want to add something that you know my anti-communism is ultimately anti-statism. That that's you know I'm an ANCAP, principally. That's where I'm coming from. So uh, I noticed that the whole state, the state is the real exploiter. And uh, so there is something like Hoppe put it. There's there is something right about Marxism, but it has the wrong players in mind. It, it just has the wrong analysis. It, it has historically something to the narrative, but the the analysis is wrong. Uh, so that was a very interesting turn that I made too. But we need to be on the lookout for people that are disaffected and becoming disaffected, and we need to find a way to reach them. Uh, through language, but also narrative. And uh, and I think, and I want to say this, uh, the, the Libertarian Party could be more wel welcoming to people. 
Uh, and not I just agree. the libertarian. I think the libertarian movement in general is fa- fairly welcoming, but the party still has um, some shibboleths and so forth that they maintain to exclude people, and I think that's a mistake. I think we need to be more welcoming and less, uh, you know, rejecting on of people um, based on where they're coming from. People are a not not responsible for their for the circumstances of birth. And in, some, in many cases, they're not responsible for the indoctrination that they were under. They have, you know, the indoctrination system is so severe in this state. The state's uh, agents and its propagandists are everywhere, and, and they're getting to so many people. These people are victims of this. We need to find them and rescue them. We need to look at this more as a rescue mission than 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 as a uh, you know, a, a time to condemn people for having been um, duped. So that's that's what I try to do. I'm an educator. I've been in, you know, I was, I, that's, that's what I did. I, I was an educator for 30 years. And um, I, I believe that education is the means, but we need to have some empathy too and to, you know, to welcome people into the fold uh, and not uh, strictly treat them like uh, vermin. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I, I completely agree. Yeah, excellent answer. And uh, evacuate the state. Look for those people on the fence. Uh, they're probably not too yeah. ideologically entrenched. So we can hopefully inject uh, some reason, some evidence, some logic, and uh, persuade them onto the right side of history. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work, having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Well, Dr. Reckenwald, I know you're on Twitter as Wreck the Regime. Uh, I know you have several books for sale on Amazon.com. Um, <clears throat> I want a Wreck the Regime t-shirt, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have uh, We're going to do that. We're going to have t-shirts, okay. bumper stickers. It's the best slogan that you can put on a t-shirt, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's great. It's absolutely great. But uh, please feel free to use this opportunity to plug any of your social media accounts, uh, your books, your websites, Mm -hmm. anything you want to tell people. Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, Yeah. So it's at Wreck the Regime. That's R-E-C-T-E-H-E Regime uh, at Twitter or X. Uh, Getting tired of saying formerly Twitter. Um, (laughs) Let's just call it X for all of it. Uh, and then my, I have two major websites. Uh, the campaign website is wrecktheregime.com. Uh, that'll get you there, wrecktheregime.com. And then my personal business website is uh, michaelrechtenwalt.com. And that's one word. 
And there you will find like the whole saga of my history and everything connected to it. Everything is there. I don't hide a thing. Uh, you can get all my essays for free. I don't charge as on Substack. And uh, the only thing I charge for are books and sometimes merchandise. Uh, right now, I'm not floating any over there, but I, it'll probably come back. Uh, all my interviews, all my essays, all my appearances, etc., are all cataloged. And all my refer- uh, mentions in the media, uh, people cite me a lot. That's all there. I keep a complete record with my assistant, Lori Price, who's uh, my right-hand man as well. Or I guess she's the right-hand woman and Heiss is the right-hand man. Uh, so there's uh, michaelrechtenwald.com and wreck-the-regime.com. Wonderful. And uh, definitely looking forward to those T-shirts. Uh, best of luck for uh, Mike Heiss integrating. I'm sure he's going to be uh, a, quite a boost He's a, he's a great person, as you noted. And um, yeah, yeah, just a killer leader. You know, he, he's great at what he does. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was certainly a pleasure to talk with you today, Dr. Reckenwald. And, um, you know, thank you for being brave enough to stand up to the regime and uh, also to allow yourself to become a proverbial martyr speaking against the destructive mainstream narratives and, of course, the toxic cultural platitudes. So we wish you the best of luck in the 2024 election. And uh, we certainly appreciate your time today with us. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again down the road somewhere or here. Thank you. Thank you.